1: All the talk of this has no place in decent society. My question was, did you ever say that to your father? Because he's the one holding the purse strings and he's the one donating to candidates who further his political agenda. And this is not just your crazy uncle ranting about Muslims. This is a guy who has the ability with his money to do some real damage.
0: Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we speak to author Bijan Bain and we speak to sports radio host Julie DeCaro about all manner of scandal and skullduggery that's happening in the world of sports right now. Also, I've got some choice words about the passing of the great Frank Robinson. I also have Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards and more. But first, let's start with Julie DeCaro. Okay, so This week, Joe Ricketts, who's 77 years old and is the billionaire patriarch whose family owns the Chicago Cubs and iconic Wrigley Field, was the subject of a splinter news story that revealed old emails in which he expressed bigotry towards Muslims and shared racist jokes. Here to talk about how that's being received is Julie DeCaro, radio host at 670 The Score and a sports writer of terrific note. Uh, terrific Twitter follow as well. So I wanted to give you the chance to rant and discuss this a little bit. Um, How is the Ricketts news? How's it being received in Chicago?
1: Well, it's, it it was an absolute, it was sort of like, um, you know, a bomb kind of went off. I mean, I think Cubs fans at this point have really just sort of had it starting with a role. Let me say this. There's a there's a faction of cub fans that have had it right because there's always that faction that just doesn't care mm-hmm. um but you know it it was following on the heels of trading for aald as Chapman in 2016 which a lot of people are still not over um bringing in Daniel Murphy after extremely homophobic comments into one of the the uh most inclusive neighborhoods uh, in the country, I think, right next to Boys Town in Wrigley Field. Um, and then this. And I think that, you know, a lot of people have not been thrilled with the Ricketts politics. But at the same time, those emails were so far beyond the pale and were so uh just garbage to read. They were difficult to get through, they they were just so terrible. And so, you know, on the one hand, there are people who are really upset. There are people who are like, I'm canceling my season tickets. Um, But there's a lot of other people who just, you know, it's sort of blown over already. And it's only it's been less than a week.
0: Mm. So you, you already feel like the storm has passed on this particular story?
1: Yeah, it feels that way. I mean, the first couple days, it was a big deal. Um, Of course, there's, you know, when we're talking about it on the air, there's people calling in and saying, you know, what do you care? He has nothing to do with the team. Well, you know, he does have quite a bit to do with the team. He's not there for day to day operations. He's not walking around talking to the fans. He's not there, you know, meeting with Theo Epstein about stuff. But uh, this first round of emails that was released by Splinter a couple months ago shows that he really is sort of the puppet master for all these different businesses the Rickett family have their hands in, right? So when it comes to things like you know whether or not the Cubs have the money to go out and sign a free agent, Joe Ricketts, I think, is very involved in those discussions. I think he's involved in how much money goes to the Cubs. Um, so I think people are sort of starting to realize that some of the things um that they don't necessarily agree with are impacting baseball decisions, right? So right right now, the Ricketts, they always say, you know, we keep politics separate from baseball, but they're trying to oust an alderman from Wrigleyville, a longtime alderman, because he's not necessarily as friendly to just letting them do whatever it is they want to do in and around the park. Um, there's been rumors that Todd Ricketts, who is the one who's on Trump's re-election committee, or he's heading up Trump's re-election committee, is going to run for governor in a couple years. And people have started saying, well, Maybe they're squirreling away money because they want to, you know, challenge J.B. Pritzker for a governorship in Illinois. So this was just sort of the latest thing to come out. But, you know, whenever it's something like this, whether it's, you know, domestic violence or homophobic comments or, uh, you know, comments like this about the Islamic community, it's really sort of disheartening how quickly some of it seems to blow over. And it feels like it's already sort of old news.
0: So what are the Cubs doing, though? I mean, are they responding with apologies? Are they trying to reach out to the Muslim community? Are they trying to just stonewall this and move on? How do you feel like their response has been?
1: Yeah, well, initially they came out and they gave us the line of, um, you know, these comments have no place in decent society, and anyway, our dad has nothing to do with the team, which was, you know, sort Mm. of disingenuous, and I think they thought that would be enough, but that wasn't enough. People were extremely upset. There were a lot of— Journalists um, who practice Muslim um, fans, ticket holders, season ticket holders who wrote letters to the Cubs and, and everything sort of went viral and, and you know was published in papers and I had people on my show, so we were all talking about it. Um, then the head of like the Islamic American Center and uh, CARE and organizations like that started demanding more from the Ricketts and so now they say and I don't know if they have already but they say we're going to meet with these organizations. But you know the thing for me was. You can meet with these organizations. I mean, that's great. That's fine. I mean, I'm all for inclusivity. People have called for a Muslim American night. But what we really need, I, the thing that I never saw in any of those emails was someone pushing back and saying, you know, dad, this isn't acceptable. Stop sending me this garbage. Mm. You know, it, you don't see that. And so for all the talk of this has no place in decent society, my question was, did you ever say that to your father? Because he's the one holding the purse strings, and he's the one donating to candidates who further his political agenda. And this is not just your crazy uncle ranting about Muslims. This is a guy who has the ability with his money to do some real damage.
0: Do you think they would have a Muslim American night or or an Islamic night at Wrigley Field? Because I've written about the number of Christian conservative events that often happen at ballparks, and I've never heard of any other religion getting that primacy that
1: I think, yeah. yeah, right. I think they had one at, and the Mets had an Islamic American night, which is great. Um, You know, given, I don't know, maybe they will. I find it hard. I would, given what Joe Ricketts had to say and given the fact that, you know, it's Joe Ricketts money that the kids are playing with all the time. And you have to think that that's maybe part of the reason why they don't push back on their dad a little bit more. I'd be surprised if we see that. I think there would be uh, from their dad's side. I think there would be a lot of pushback.
0: Now, on, you mentioned the radio show that you host on 670 The Score. What, what have the call-ins been like?
1: Well, first of all, it depends if you're taking calls, if you're looking at the text line, right? Because the text line is like the worst humans in the world. I mean, they're anonymous, they can say whatever they want. So the the people come, the texts coming in are sort of, you know, what you would, what you'd see on Twitter from like far right conservatives, right? Like, I mean, there's people screaming at me about Sharia law and how it's going to take over America and, you know, people screaming about Pakistan and, and just all kinds of crazy stuff. The callers for the most part are a little bit more measured and they, you know, some of them would say like what they said about Daniel Murphy, well, if these are his beliefs, believes he has a right to his beliefs. Well, yeah, he does. But Cubs fans also have a right to sort of hold their organization accountable from outright racism. And, and we're sort of back to the same conversation we had about Daniel Murphy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. people start calling in and are like, well, if, if it's, you can have a right to believe that it's okay to be gay, then why can't he believe that it's not? And it's, it, it's like, the, you don't even know what to say to these people because the conversations get so ridiculous. It's like, you know, you who pointed out the racism, you're the real racist. I mean, that's kind of the conversation. Um so you know I would say that the people texting in are vitriolic and typically really really terrible um and the people um calling in are better but you know there's a there's a certain faction of society that gets off I think on being semi anonymous and, and being able to call in and say the things they wouldn't otherwise say in polite society. So, uh, you know, I, I think that there was a much bigger pushback on Twitter and, you know, in articles written by sports writers and stuff like that. But, you know, frankly, everyone in the city, the Cubs are the biggest thing in the city right now, maybe the Bears now because of the season they had. Nobody wants to lose access to the Cubs. So there's a fair amount of sports writers out there who just said nothing, which I think was really uh, sort of difficult for a lot of us to swallow.
0: Wow, that, that's an interesting angle on this I hadn't thought about, that the sports media themselves is complicit in making this a one-day or a two-day story and not something that's seen through.
1: Well, yeah, and then there's always, you know, the the especially for women, you know, but for men as well, that you push back on these kinds of things, and you really dive into them, and you talk about them, and you get labeled as difficult, and then next thing you know, you're not the one getting the interview with Joe Madden, and you're not the one getting, you know, getting to be on the field to do, you know, like stuff uh, ahead of the playoffs and stuff like that. So, um, you know, there are a lot of people who I think are, are generally more concerned about preserving access than than anything else.
0: Yeah, I hate to switch gears so quickly, but you mentioned about the Cubs being the biggest thing in town, except for maybe the Bears. And of course, the name that's not there is the Bulls, who, as this discussion, yeah. um, they just lost 10 straight home games for the first time in the history of the franchise. What What is the general vibe around the Bulls right now? Is there patience with the rebuilding? And
1: Oh, no. What, no. no. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, here's the thing. So, uh, you know, it, the bulls have been terrible. This was the year they said they were going to be competitive. They never want to go through another year like last year where they sort of tanked, but then didn't even do that. Right. And, and wound up with a seventh pick. Um, so they said they never wanted to do that again this year. They were going to try to be competitive. Well, they've been worse than they were last year when they were intentionally tanking. And John Paxson came on my radio station, six seventy to the score earlier in the week and was just really defensive and started arguing with the host, calling it an interrogation and basically saying and they weren't respectful, and they were asking really fair questions about what's going on with the franchise. So, um, you know, there was sort of hope that the Bulls would sort of accidentally tank um, well enough that they've got a decent shot at a number one pick. Um, But then they go out and bring in Otto Porter, um, and they've been, you know, unable to bring in free agents for the last 10 years. So um, no, there's not a lot of patience. Um, A lot of people are just like, this is a disaster. There's a protest coming up of Gar Pax, which is what we call John Paxson and Gar Foreman collectively. So um, the people really feel like nothing's going to change until the front office is out. The problem is that Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner, uh, is extremely loyal to the people who work for him and typically doesn't fire people. So I, I think there's a little bit of hopelessness with the Bulls right now in the sense of, you know, we're sort of stuck in NBA purgatory And, uh, you know, whether or not they ever get out remains to be seen.
0: You got to tell me more about this protest. What's that about?
1: You know, I don't know much about it. I know it was on it was a Facebook thing. And the only reason I think most of us knew about it is because John Paxson brought it up during his interview, oh my. he was sort of like, "Do you think I don't know about this protest that everyone's <laughs> going to have?" That and he, this is what he said: that 250 people are interested in, but only 71 people are attending. I mean, like he's oh like God. way in his feelings about this protest, and so that's the way I think most people found out about it. Um, so I don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, according to John Paxson, he meets Bulls fans all the time who tell him how happy they are with the direction of the franchise, which I just cannot believe is the actual case. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But yeah, I mean, uh, clearly it's starting to get to John Paxson.
0: God, this sounds so familiar to Washington, D.C., like a general manager who can't be fired, uh, an owner whose loyalty transcends all possible reason or understanding. <laughs> and these two franchises do this trade, Otto Porter for Bobby Portis and Jabari Parker. Uh, I mean, just because Otto Porter was so near and dear to DC's heart, I got to ask you, like, how is this trade being received? Are people excited about it? Or is it like, what is the plan here? What are you doing?
1: Well, yeah, it's what's the plan here? Because people are like, well, we're supposed to be trying to rebuild through the draft. This year's draft is incredibly shallow. So why do you go out and get Otto Porter and make your team better? I mean, Jabari Parker's been just a disaster from the beginning, right? I mean, it started with this press conference where he announced that he doesn't play defense, and it just sort of went downhill from there. Uh, so enjoy that. Um, Bobby Portis was actually genuinely liked by the fan base, especially after he punched Nikol Miritich in the face last year. Um, people really enjoyed that about him. It took him one day to start hashtagging DC family. So Bulls fans were like, he's already got a new family. Uh, <laughs> I mean, people are like, you know, on paper, Otto Porter Jr. makes the Bulls a better team. But should we be trying to get better at this point? I mean, you know, sort of tanking for Zion seems to be their only way out. So I think people are a little confused about what exactly it is that we're doing.
0: Exactly. You can't be trying for Zion. No, thank you. You Cannot. I've I've, I've copyrighted that, by the way. That's a good one,
1: Dave. Yeah. Thank
0: you. Congrats. (laughs)
1: Hey,
0: hey, Julie, thank you so much for taking the time on this uh, Sunday morning. Really do appreciate it.
1: No problem. It's always good to talk to you, Dave. Take
0: care. We'll be back right after this. But first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important. And The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to the slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Bishan Bain, I mean, my first question for you, honestly, is just, uh, I'm going to be speaking a little later in the broadcast about the passing of Frank Robinson, and I would just love your thoughts about his legacy, what he meant, and in uh, a bit of his trailblazing history that sometimes gets overlooked.
2: Well, um, it's just intriguing that a person has that many either uh, things that he's the only person that did or the first person uh, to accomplish them. It's kind of a odd career. I mean, it's not that some of them weren't under his design, but I mean, some of them are just, uh, they took on a life of their own. Um, I mean, they're obvious. and, And of course, when he was, when people wrote their appreciations and obituaries and things of that nature, you know, they all come to mind in the first paragraph, the rookie of the year, or the MVP in both leagues, only person, uh, triple crown, which is very rare, uh, certainly rare after 66 when he did it and, uh, first black manager in the majors, but between the lines of all those accomplishments and firsts and onlys is just the singular manner in which he was respected and the, um, Team leadership that defined his career, even before he was a manager, Um, establishing the kangaroo court uh, with the Orioles, sort of their own sort of uh, internal policing of people that made mental or or running errors, base running errors, throwing errors, things of that nature with the fine system and how he governed that. Managing in Puerto Rico at in Santorise in the late 60s, which led everybody to sort of project that he would be the first black manager in the majors. His um, the way he crowded the plate, which also distinguished him, and he was hit by hit by pitches so many times because of it, uh, especially in his National League career, and uh, just the way he commanded the clubhouse and uh, expected discipline. He played gritty. He played hard and he uh, expected it of others and one of the things that is the uh, legacy of that is the way that the Cincinnati Reds when Pete Rose came up in the mid-sixties found out that Rose was sort of patterning his game and how hard he played after Frank Robinson and Tommy Harper and Vader Pinson the three outfielders and (laughs) who were actually all from Oakland incidentally and when the front office found out that he was shattering those guys and uh, sort of um, trying to soak up as much baseball knowledge and as as much of their ethos about how hard they played and how tough they were the front office warned him you know kind of stay away from those uh, three negro veterans and you know carve out your own niche cuz Pete was a Cincinnati and he was a hometown product and he was an infielder, he wasn't an outfielder but those were the team leaders and uh, when you look at the way that Rose played, like running out his bases on balls to first base, that's all Robinson. So I think that some of that gets lost in, in all the accolades and the first and the onlys.
0: Now, you wrote the biography of Elgin Baylor, Elgin Baylor, the man who changed basketball. Are there is there an interesting compare and contrast with Elgin Baylor and Frank Robinson?
2: I believe so. I call him the uh, Elgin Baylor of baseball because from... 61 when the Reds were in the World Series through the early 70s when the Orioles were still an AL championship caliber team 71 they're still in the series against Clemente he was the he was the Elgin Baylor of basketball of baseball in the sense that he was the most respected player he was the guy that was the team leader, the guy that distributed all the nicknames. He was sort of the, the, uh, the clubhouse authority, uh, where Baylor was, was the guy in pro basketball that would nickname all the players and things of that nature. It was Frank Robinson in Baltimore that nicknamed Kurt Bleffery Clank after a TV robot because Bleffery was such a poor fielder. So uh, just that sense of dignity, authority, uh, not to be fooled with, uh, playing hard, um, outspoken black player, uh, traded from Cincinnati in, in 1965 because Bill DeWitt called him an old 30, but that's not really the reason he was traded. He was traded because when he walked into a diner in Cincinnati and the, uh, the person behind the counter called him a racial slur and threatened him with a gun, uh, Robinson uh, defended himself and uh, it was in the headlines, and I think Robinson may or may not have had a pistol himself, but the point was that they they just wanted him out of Cincinnati. It wasn't that he was an old 30. And Baylor was a person that demanded that kind of respect on and off the
0: court. Mm. That's a great comparing. I haven't heard anybody else make that comparison.
2: Well, Baylor was the first black to boycott a a game in, in major pro sports in North America, and I think Robinson just... Um, you know, he, he, he's he's much more a vocal team leader than, say, a Mays, an Aaron, uh, a Ted Williams, a Mantle. He was he was the guy, you know. He was the Jordan, you know, that got on you for making the errors. He was the Jackie Robinson, you know, that got on you for making the mental mistakes. And that's why he's the first manager.
0: Yeah, and what did Brooks Robinson say that Frank Robinson taught us how to win?
2: Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, this guy came over and brought sort of a National League ethic of the uh, the hard base running and, and uh, diving for balls in the outfield into the stands and and sort of playing a, a, a different way to to uh, the to the mid-60s American League but the mid-60s American League is kind of considered still Mantle and K-Lines league and is becoming Yaz's league. Uh, and the National League wasn't. The National League was all about uh Afro, Latins, and Blacks. It was Maury Wills, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Roberto Clemente, Mattia Alou, Orlando, Cepeda. That wasn't the AL style. AL was a home run league.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. So to to go from a player who uh, just passed away to a player who's just coming up, um, and I'm sorry to skip around like this, but I did want to ask you about Zion Williamson. Like As we're doing this interview, he kind of shocked the basketball world on Saturday night by blocking a three-point shot and jumping. I mean, have you seen this footage? It looks like something out of the Matrix.
2: I actually have, and I mean, (laughs) that is just his, his freshman year and just given the expectations and the burdens of that and the spotlight and the fact that it's a duke and the fact that it's you know happening under uh, a microscope is just beyond expect expectations not just athletically but just um just, just the the, the grace, the, the 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 awareness of the game, the quickness, the not trying to do too much or too little, the comfort with having other stars like Barrett on the team. Uh, really, really interesting um, young player. I mean, obviously size, quickness, and and the ability to to to, to get up off the floor like that is is quite unusual in a person with that frame and of course he's going to get stronger and smarter and and uh and 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 probably a little larger but um you just don't hear basketball players talking about basketball players in their freshman year like that basketball players are usually a little close to the vest and a little oh yeah who's the next blue chipper but the the hushed tones that I've heard other, other former players talk about him with is, is kind of what made me uh, take more notice. So um, <laughs> it's only going to get better when he's playing with better people, and he's going to be playing with a, a whole different caliber of people next year.
0: Yeah, and does he remind you of anybody? I mean, that's been a big topic of conversation, or is he just the son of none?
2: Well, there's... There's McGinnis things in there, there's Daryl Dawkins things in there, and there's Kemp things in there. And then, uh, you know, some people are obviously, because of the weight and and the muscle, are going to have some LeBron comparisons. Um, I I would say the game has changed a lot, and the expectations of a person that size are a little more, um, you know, we've been exposed to more versatility since the 80s and the 90s. But it's still unusual in quite that uh, that height and body weight, so I, I would say probably the earliest precursor that's that that's somewhat of a comp is probably Daryl Dawkins because Daryl Dawkins could get up off the floor and could do some of those things. but most of the things that that Daryl Dawkins could do that would be uh, um, welcomed in today's three-point game and spread offense, which are wing, wing player abilities, were frowned on when Dawkins did them, and people were like, oh, Philly could really win a title if he, would just, if he would just focus on helping out under the boards and rebounding and blocking shots instead of trying to drive from the wing. So I think Dawkins would be, in his weight, because uh, he was probably 265 as a rookie, would be maybe the closest
0: now, my uh, co-radio host uh, Etan Thomas thinks Zion should just shut it down. What do you think about that? In other words, just wait till the draft. Don't play another game. Don't risk, th- excuse me, don't risk a thing for Coach K. What w- what would you advise, young Zion?
2: Well, I could see that from a, uh, of an athlete or a former athlete's point of view. I think it's done often in college football, especially in, in terms of bowls and all-star games. I don't know if, if that would be uh, socially as palatable in basketball, uh, even when the pros do it because of the 82-game grind and the playoffs and the preseason and the FIBA demands that they have. <laughs> mm-hmm. They catch a lot of it's It's quite controversial when the pros have done it. I, I think if a kid did it, I don't know how they would uh, – how that would be managed and how it would be massaged for media and fans. And I don't know how he would um, frame that to Coach K. I think it's relatively good advice from a physical standpoint and from a professional standpoint. But I I, I just think in terms of his image, I don't know how that's going to be massaged.
0: Now, every time we have you on the show, I really like this. We talk anniversaries, and we just passed into 2019. What are some sports anniversaries people should be aware of this year?
2: Well, we're coming into the fiftieth of when the Jets, Knicks, and Mets came to prominence and won World Championships in an overlapping year. If you count seventy for the Knicks because it started in '69, that's very important in terms of the way people followed uh, sports and announcers and, uh, and the freight, the whole Fraser name of uh, superstardom uh, period.
0: That's a good one, 50 years since then. Any Ali anniversaries? I think we got some Yeah, the
2: Champ, uh, the, the listing fight was February 24th of, of, of 64, so we're up on the 55th. So there are not that many journalists alive that were in Miami that night.
0: I got some more. We're, uh, we're going to be at 40 years, so the We Are Family, Willie Stargell. That's right, Pittsburgh Pirates. That's yeah. not. That's nothing small. Bill no, Madlock. and the door is
2: next month with uh, the Michigan State. I mean, this is impossible to believe in terms of just time going by. But Michigan State Indiana, Indiana Michigan State Indiana State NCAA final will be forty mm. years next month. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to believe that that was forty years ago. I mean, you think well, that means the players were in their early twenties, or Magic was nineteen.
0: Well, Magic is pushing incredible. 60 right now. Yeah. That's, no, that's the fact the that it was 40 years ago is just weird. No, I know. And that's what happens with these dates. I mean, they just kind of crawl up on you, and you're just like, what? How did this happen? We're 30 years from, this is one for me, because um, I, I don't have memory of the 79 one, but I mm-hmm. certainly have memory 30 years ago of, this was the, uh, the, uh, the Earthquake World Series. Oh, wow. With the Giants and the A's. Yeah, 30 years. Uh,
2: the Bay Area World Series, uh, the Bash Brothers, mm-hmm. the Bash that, Brothers. That's that. Yeah, I mean, there was no Twitter. There was no. I mean, it was just Nightline.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, the media was totally different oh, when Lord. that happened.
0: Twenty years since uh, the truncated NBA season, where the Spurs won the title over the the Latrell Sprewell Knicks. <laughs> yeah, that was. Maybe that's more for me, but that, that that's lock, a big. I that, yeah. can't believe that's. 20 no, but years. I mean that's that's the lockout era, and that's that's
2: you know, Patino was in Boston, and the, you know, even that's twenty years.
0: <laughs> this is this is kind of yeah. Even that. Sorry 20 to do years. this to you. Man. <laughs> I'm, so, I, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I mean it's it's
2: interesting that that's twenty. I mean, was Jordan in D.C. in
0: '99? No, or was he, he uh, was still in retirement mode. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, something. Well, Bajam Bain, I also love always your your musical uh, taste. What are you listening to these days?
2: Oh, you know, it's funny because last night on SNL, Halsey was was the guest and we're coming up on the Grammys. So um, listen to, I heard, you know, there's a lot of, unrest on the streets in Haiti now, and and unrest is probably not even the right, not even the proper term. I was in Haiti a couple weeks ago for the Port-au-Prince Jazz Festival, and I heard Joss Stone in person. And, you know, so I'm listening, you know, it's kind of a female superstar vocalist era, you know, Wait, Joss
0: who, Stone was in Haiti yeah, for the she, jazz festival?
2: Yeah, and they don't have a lot of money for that fest, so I wondered how they wow. how they pulled that off. But I think the fact, she she was doing a world tour, and she had just been in some places like she, she was in Cuba. She might have been in Martinique. I think she was in a uh, smaller island like, mm, I don't know if it's Grenada or someplace like that. So I think they might have presented it to her or she might've been amenable to doing it because she was, she was doing a world tour. But I think, you know, you know, we're in an era of like the Cardi B's, the Nicky's, the Rihanna's, the before that, the Katy Perry's, you still have uh, Taylor Swift. It's kind of a, a ladies, uh, superstar era. So (laughs) I try to, I try to stay up on, on that, uh, group of of folks, because they make headlines. uh, uh, Certainly Cardi B does make headlines that cross over into into things like politics.
0: Mm. Well, let me just say this. You also cross over very gracefully into politics. So... Bijan Bean, thank you so much for joining us here on the Edge of Sports Podcast.
2: No, I appreciate you having me on again, uh, Dave, and pointing out some of those. When you hear 40, you're like, oh, yeah, that was a long time ago. But then when you hear like 20, you're like, wow, that was a long time
0: ago, too. Yeah, that was a long time ago, too. Exactly. <laughs> it just doesn't feel as long.
2: Oh, great, great
0: speaking with you again. And now I've got some choice words about the passing of Frank Robinson. Okay, look, Frank Robinson passed away at the age of 83, and this has produced obituaries and common facts and themes fitting for someone with such a sterling professional resume. He's the first ballot Hall of Famer. He's the only person who have won most valuable player awards in both leagues for the Reds and the Baltimore Orioles. The man hit 586 career home runs, and he was an all-star 14 times. Now, these remembrances have also marked Robinson's time as a trailblazer when he became the first black manager in Major League Baseball history after taking over the Cleveland Indians in 1975. Through all of the recollections, it's been made clear that this man was as tough as a $3 steak and could be as ornery as anyone when there was a call for him to be the intimidator. But there is more to Robinson, though, than someone who carried himself with a fierce dignity on the field and then knock down the doors into the Major League dugout. That can be seen in his last wishes, conveyed by Robinson's family, that contributions in his memory be made to the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, or the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. It can also be seen in the love and respect given by two of his legendary contemporaries, Henry Aaron and Robinson's high school basketball teammate, Bill Russell. Henry Aaron remembered... Frank Robinson and I were more than baseball buddies. We were friends. Frank was a hard-nosed baseball player who did things on the field that people said could never be done. I'm so glad I had the chance to know him all of those years. Baseball will miss a tremendous human being. As for Bill Russell, he tweeted, Heartbreaking news in the passing of my dear friend and McClemens High School classmate Frank Robinson. It was my pleasure and great honor to have known him. We all know we lost one of the greats. What we really lost was a friend. But there's another Frank Robinson that I would want to recall. The Robinson from the April 27, 1987 issue of People magazine. He gave an interview after Los Angeles Dodgers team vice president Al Campanis appeared on Ted Koppel's Nightline to commemorate the 40th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's breaking of the color barrier and integrating Major League Baseball. Instead of praising Jackie Robinson, Campana had something else in mind. He chose to justify the fact that in 1987 there were zero black managers in the sport. He spoke about black players not having the necessities to be field managers or general managers. The reaction would be best described as shock, a shock generated by hearing Campana say out loud what many suspected was whispered behind closed doors. These sentiments were all too familiar to black players, who had seen their coaching ambitions stymied after retirement. At this moment of shock and frustration, it was Frank Robinson who took to the pages of People magazine and was willing to speak a scalding truth to power. Robinson said, Baseball has been hiding this ugly prejudice for years, that blacks aren't smart enough to be managers or third base coaches or part of the front office. There's a belief that they're fine when it comes to the physical part of the game, but if it involves brains, they just can't handle it. Al Campanis made people finally understand what goes on behind closed doors, that there is racism in baseball. He then put the onus on players to speak out and fight for change, saying... Young people say sports figures are their idols, and we have to conduct ourselves in such a manner that young people can really look up to us and model themselves after us. If we continue to allow this sort of racism to exist, we don't deserve to be idolized. Frank Robinson also called out the hypocrisy of a league that celebrates Jackie Robinson, while engaging in progress best described as glacial. He said... If Jackie Robinson were alive and willing today, would the lords of baseball be likely to admit him to their ranks? No. He was too controversial, too honest. He'd create too many problems by speaking up and speaking out. White management doesn't like black people to speak their minds. They like you to be seen and not heard. And Jackie Robinson wouldn't put himself in that position. Frank Robinson wouldn't put himself in that position either. He went on to work inside Major League Baseball to fight for more hiring of black and Latino candidates for managerial positions, and to also manage again with the Orioles, Montreal Expos, and then the Washington Nationals. Frank Robinson was so much more than an athlete. He was a fighter, and we could use more like him in the sports world today. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week actually goes to Maryland State lawmakers, who in the wake of the death of Jordan McNair, offensive lineman for the Maryland Terrapins, They have proposed a bill that would give athletes the right to unionize and collectively bargain over issues related to health and safety, as well as compensation. Jordan McNair, of course, died in an off-season drill. And I had thought 17 players in the NCAA had died in these kinds of off-season drills since the year 2000. Maryland lawmakers cited 30 players who've died. And I've said it once and I'll say it again. Whether the number is 17 or 30... I mean, if you had that many NFL players die during that time in off-season drills, there would be congressional hearings. The fact that Maryland lawmakers have taken this obvious step, a step that's frankly way overdue, to allow for players to be able to collectively bargain their own exploitation, I mean, frankly, it's more than past due. And I'm just going to give them a little pat on the back and say, keep going, Maryland state lawmakers. Keep going, because athletes should have the right to unionize and collectively bargain over issues related to their health and safety, as well as compensation. This week, we also have an email from John Mark Shorak, who sent us the following, his own nomination for a Just Stand Up award. He wrote, Hi Dave, about a year ago I came across your Edge of Sports podcast, and ever since I've been a weekly enthusiastic listener. To both Edge of Sports and The Collision. That's the show I do with Atan Thomas on Pacifica Radio. First off, I want to propose a Just Stand Up Award for the women of the Burn It All Down podcast. As a historian myself, the show's combination of women history professors and sports journalism is beautiful and provides a genuinely unique take on sports, which is a lot more meaningful than the typical sports coverage. Their alternative coverage sheds light on how true journalism should be done, and it also shines a bright light for others to follow in their footsteps. Well, John, I certainly do agree with that. Um, I believe we've had every member of the Burn It All Down crew on the Edge of Sports podcast. Uh, Lindsey Gibbs, Amira uh, Davis, Jessica Luther, uh, Shireen Ahmed, big fan of Shireen, of course, and Brenda Elsey. And it's been terrific to see the growth of that podcast over the last uh, several years. So yes, uh, just stand up to the Burn It All Down podcast. Uh, Big props to them. Big props to them having uh, such an avid fan base as well. The Just Sit Down Award.
2: Sit your ass down.
0: I mean, this is a serious one. It goes to uh, Justin Fairfax, uh, the lieutenant governor here in Virginia, pretty close to where I'm recording this podcast as well as the Duke University power structure. Uh, Justin Fairfax, for those of you who've been living in a cave, has been accused by two women of sexual assault. One of them was when he was a student at Duke in the year 2000 by a woman named Meredith Watson, uh, who has bravely come forward. Uh, Watson has said that she was also assaulted by a Duke basketball player in 1999 and that Fairfax used this fact to justify his assault of her. According to Watson, Fairfax basically said to her, well, you were assaulted once, so I didn't think you'd come forward if I assaulted you as well. Now, as part of Meredith Watson coming forward with her story, she says that she went to a dean at Duke University to tell them about what had happened to her uh, with the Duke basketball player, and that when she spoke to the dean, her concerns were basically big-footed, And she was shown the door, assumedly to protect the almighty, lucrative Duke basketball empire built by Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski. Duke University is now saying that they will investigate this 20 years after the fact, and who knows what they'll find after all this time. Either way, the fact that she expressed these concerns about Duke basketball and was shown the door, and the fact that Justin Fairfax, according to Meredith Watson, used. The fact that she was assaulted by a player on the Duke team as a way to justify uh, his assault on her, I mean, this is just beyond disgusting. Justin Fairfax should resign, Duke basketball should open itself up for immediate investigation, and Meredith Watson should be applauded for her bravery. Okay, well, I don't think I have any Kaepernick watch this week. Uh, I guess things after the Super Bowl settled down a touch. So I will just say thank you to everybody listening. Thank you to Julie DeCaro. Thank you to Bijan Bain. Thank you to everybody out there listening. If you like the show, please give it a rating, write a little comment. All that stuff makes a big difference in terms of promotion and the various algorithms. Not that I know how they work. And for everybody out there, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.